Thank you. Please be seated. Let's uh, turn our Bibles to First John. First John. And uh, chapter 4. First John chapter 4. We will read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. First John and chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, brethren, we are back in this uh, series of messages on the subject of assurance of salvation um, from First John, and we are still within this rather lengthy section that is dealing with the subject of love as a way in which we can know that we are saved by God. And last week, we were looking at verse 16 of uh, chapter 4 and noted that belief in God giving us his son convinces us of an essential characteristic of God, and that is that God is love. And this belief results in a life of love for others and also results in experiential assurance. And hence he says there, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Today, we are going one step further to see that this also results in us having a bold assurance, bold enough to enable us to imagine standing before God on the judgment day, and instead of scampering for cover, we are able to do so without a tremor passing through our being. 
And John introduces a new word in verse 17 that we are looking at. And it is the word perfect or the word perfected. And notice that both verse 17 and verse 18 again and again mentions this word. In verse 17 we read, by this is love perfected with us. In verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And again, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We'll be looking at that in a moment. But clearly, John is bringing out an important point here that baffles the, the non-Christians, whether it is worshippers in other religions or even nominal Christians. And it is the fact that individuals can live on earth and say that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And even when they are challenged to say, well, look, when you die, there is a judgment that is coming. Are you telling me that when you stand before God on the judgment day, you have confidence that he will not only declare you righteous, but usher you into his heaven and you are able to say, yes, I am confident. No other believers in any form of religion in the world can say that. They always speak in terms of some vague hope. I hope so. I am working to that end. It's only true Christians, born again Christians, who are able to say, I know. I know that when I get there, I will be welcomed into God's heaven. How? Well, this is what our text is telling us here. So let's go to verse 17. We are learning, first of all, that the act of love on God's part and the acts of love on our part completes the circle of love. And that is the basis or the ground of our confidence. This is what John means when he says, at the beginning of verse 17, by this is love perfected with us. What does he mean by saying by this? What, what, what has he got in mind when he speaks that way? Well, clearly he is pointing backwards to what he has just been speaking about. He is speaking there about God's love for us and is also speaking about that reality of love that is flowing out of our hearts towards others. Look at the previous verse. He says there in verse 16, God is love and Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love 
perfected. Clearly, he has in mind that love of God and that love of God that is flowing out of our hearts towards others. It is the two together that make love perfect or that make love complete, which is really the same phrase as perfect that is being spoken about here. And that's an important point that we need to realize. That you see, true Christian love is not simply us gazing into the heavens and saying, wow, God, you've truly loved us. Look at the way in which you've given your son, you've sacrificed your son, your only son, God the son, to come and die for us. You are so loving. We worship you. And because we acknowledge that, we'll therefore go into heaven. That's true, but that's half the truth. The other half is this. That that same love that you have shown, because you are now in my heart, you are showing it to others day by day. You are touching human lives around me. Surely, you are truly a God of love. So it's not just rejoicing in the vertical relationship. It is that same love manifesting itself in the horizontal relationship as well. In case you think I'm dreaming that up, let's quickly go to verse 19. Verse 19. This is what it says. We love because he first loved us. He's not saying we must love. No, no. It's a statement of fact. We love. Why do we love? Because of the vertical. He has loved us. Consequently, we love. And then he puts it in the negative. Listen to this. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, okay, so God loves me, I love him back, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, does, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, here you are in the context of the church. Brothers and sisters rub you the wrong way. They gossip about you. They slander about you. Information comes back to you. They borrow money from you. They never bring it back. And it really eats away at you. Do you love them? Do you? Do you love them? They rub you the wrong way. You see, it's easier to love God because we can't see him. He never borrows from us without bringing back. He never gossips about us, or at least if he does, we don't know about it. Nobody comes to report back. It's easier to love him. But to love those we, we mingle with who every so often are doing things wrong against us, 
And yet, that's what God did through his love. He gave his son not only for gossipers and slanderers and thieves, but for murderers as well. He gives his son. So, the vertical, if it's truly God's love in us, will show itself in the horizontal. And it's not just in terms of love, but earlier on in chapter 2 of 1 John, he had spoken about righteousness in exactly the same way. Chapter 2 and verse 29. Notice again the, the vertical and the horizontal. If you know, chapter 2 and verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, okay, so that's the vertical, he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, that's the horizontal, has been born of him. That reality about God manifests itself in us. That's how we know we are born again. His life flowing through us. So here's my challenge. Look at both your doctrinal understanding and then also the outworking of your life. Has love been perfected in you? Has it? Have you reached those doctrinal convictions that God is love, is given his own son for us. Wow, what love! Especially as you gaze at Calvary. And then when your eye comes to look at your own life last week, do you also say, wow, this must be God's love in me. This is not me. It's not my natural self doing this. It's God's love in me. The circle is complete. Is that what you are seeing? Well, John here is basically giving one clear truth to us. That when love is perfected with us, it gives us assurance now to boldly face God's coming judgment. Back to chapter 4. And verse 17. He says, by this, we've already seen, is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So that we may have confidence. What does John mean by that phrase, confidence? It's simply referring to boldness, to courage. And it's, it's real courage. The, the way you can see it is the way in which in the next verse he begins to give us the opposite. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love. Fear is the opposite of this confidence, this courage, this boldness. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
a story is told of a, of a gentleman who drank a lot in the village. And one day, while he was very drunk as he was coming home, he met a lion. And some people at a distance who saw this began to tremble on his behalf. And this man looked into the lion's face and said to the lion, now you get out of my way or you will regret the day you were born. And the lion scampered into the bush and went. The man went home and slept. The story ends by saying when he woke up in the morning, he was told what he had done. He collapsed and died. <laughs> okay. It's a story, you know, it's uh, village stories. But it, it, it makes the point that that's, that's not the kind of courage that we are being told about here. That's a drunken stupor. And there are a lot of people who are very shy. And then when they go drinking, they talk a lot. In fact, there's a saying in Bemba, Okay, I'm going to drink. And then when I come back, I'll come and tell him my mind. Well, that's, that's not what is here. This, this is not Christians stopping to think, being in some kind of stupor, and consequently, they, they imagine themselves that they will stand on the day of judgment and as it will look God in the face. And say to him, Lord, I'm your child. And your home is my destination. That's not what is being talked about here. Rather, what we are being told about here is um, a real confidence. Confidence based on reality. Confidence based on facts. It's a confidence that looks back to reality and says, God is love. Look at what he has done. His very essence must be love. It's not just justice to punish, but also love that takes care of that punishment on my behalf. Jesus is given over. God has sent his son to be the savior of the world as we saw in verse 16. We know this. It's a reality. We even confess it. But it's also a reality that looks at a changed life. That says, look, this life that I am living, come on, it cannot be my natural self. I know myself too well. Surely, it must be because the God of love has worked in my heart and changed me. So why on earth would, would he send his son to pay such a high price? And why on earth would he send his spirit to change such a dark and sinful heart and then abandon me on the day of judgment? Doesn't make sense. Surely, this God of love, who loved me in the death of his son, who loves through me 
by his spirit will on that great and glorious day when he comes to judge glorify himself in bringing me into heaven. He'll be finishing off work that he began. And that's the reason why this assurance is not something you sort of say, well, perhaps on the day I die, or perhaps when I am dead, that's when I'll realize this. No, 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 no. It's an assurance that you have now. That's the point he's making here. So that we may have confidence or boldness now for the coming day of judgment. We have it now. And we can testify of it. God wants each believer to walk in this kind of assurance. This kind of eternal assurance. He wants every believer to do so. And as I've said before, this is what enables us to be fruitful as believers. Is what causes us to want to share the good news with the rest of the world. This is almost unbelievable news. That God should wash away our sins in our records in heaven. That God should wash our hearts clean by his spirit on earth. And assure us. That when we arrive on the other side, he will welcome us. Let me ask you, do you have this assurance today? Do you have it? Can you honestly say that if I was to drop dead today, I'm going to go to heaven? That when God summons the whole of the human race, including myself, to the judgment seat, I will not be wanting to scamper for cover. But I will look him in the face and love will flow one way and love will flow the other way and it will be a glorious occasion. I'm asking, do you have this kind of assurance? Well, the reason why this is so is not only because God is love, but as John ends this verse, he makes it very clear, it is also because we love others. Look at the way he puts it at the end of this verse. Verse 17 By this we know, or rather by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And here it is. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. How is he? Well, we were told in the last verse that God is love. That's the way he is. And he has demonstrated it. This is no mere philosophy. He has demonstrated it at the center stage of history by sending his own son, 
born in human likeness and causing him to finally hang on that cruel cross, bear the guilt of our sin, and he punishes him there. The son cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by the father. Why? Oh, the passage here tells us very clearly. The father sent his son to be the savior of the world in verse 14. Or earlier on, in verse 9 and 10, he speaks about the father sending his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. There is the evidence. Jesus is given that God's wrath, which ought to fall upon us, should fall upon him, that he dies in our place. As he is, he's a loving God. Doing this for sinners, for rebels, for the wicked. Well, how are we? Because this is what it's saying here. As he is, so also are we in this world. How are we? Judge yourself. How are you? Are you like him? Are you? And as I said to you last week, you don't need to get a stethoscope and put it on your heart, a spiritual stethoscope and say, how am I? How am I? Ah, just look at the last one week or two weeks. Or as I said last week, think of the three people that you don't get along with in the life of the church. Put down their names in front of you. And then ask yourself, am I loving them? Simple. Am I loving them? If the answer is no, let me give you some bad news. You are not like God. Let me give you further bad news. You're not going to heaven. And it's not me saying it. It's here in the text. We can all claim to love God as I already said. He's not here. He never does anything wrong to us. But the way in which we know we are like him who causes his son to shine upon the evil as well as the good who sends his rain upon the fields of the just and the unjust. The way we know that we are sons of our father in heaven is when we are doing the same thing. As Jesus once said, when you are doing good to those who do good to you, what are you doing more than the Gentiles or the unbelievers? That's what they do also. That's definitely not giving you any credentials worth talking about. 
Because that's what unbelievers also do. But what he's saying here is, what distinguishes you is the God kind of love. Is, is John teaching his salvation by works here? No, he's not. No, he's not. But what he's teaching is a salvation that is proved by its works. It's exactly what John was teaching in his first epistle. We'll just go back two to three books. The book of James, beginning with verse 14. Listen to this. James chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And what he means by that is he does not have works to prove what he's saying. Can that faith save him? He gives a situation. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? Obviously, the answer is it's worthless. It's not good good for anything at all. But he'll say that later. Right now, all he's saying is, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not real. It's lifeless. He goes on. But someone will say, I have faith. Rather, you have faith and I have works. In other words, dividing the two and James says, show me your faith apart from your works. But I will show you my faith by my works. There it is. A faith that is proven by works. You believe that God is one? <laughs> well, you do very well. Tick. But he adds, even the demons believe. In other words, you are in the category of demons. That's what he's saying here. Doctrinally correct. But the life says something else. And he says, the, do you want to be shown? And sometimes James gets a little worked up here. You foolish person. I, I, I hope the Bimba versions have the right words there. <laughs> that faith apart from works is useless. It's useless. Wolfy. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was perfected, there it is, completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24. 
You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And then he makes the point, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's the point that John is also making. How do you know if you're saved? Well, look at God's love and the way it's been manifested into this world. And now in true believers, his spirit lives in their hearts and works. Are you doing what God, walking on two feet on this planet, would be doing? Especially to your enemies? Are you doing that? Brethren, let's not hide behind sound doctrine. Let's not do that. While your little life is shriveled around you and your spouse and your children, just you. Although you are in the same membership list with so many other people, so you just come in for the sermon. As soon as the sermon is finished, mm, to the car, zoom off. Who's hungry in this church is no business of yours. Who's naked in this church is no business of yours. Who's struggling with school fees is no business of yours. Some of them now are no longer in college or university because the parents cannot afford. It's no business of yours. And all you know is that one or two people in this church have rubbed me the wrong way. And I don't like it. And somehow you think you will get to heaven. I've got bad news for you. You won't. You won't. Unless God changes your heart. The point that's being made here is one that we really need to use to search our hearts. Because we need to be able to speak as, as Charles Wesley spoke in the hymn that we'll be singing at the close of this service, the, the very last stanza. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Bold I do so and claim through Christ everything that is mine. Bold I approach. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. And what I'm saying is that if that's not you, instead of arguing and saying, well, look, okay, those are the super spiritual ones, you know, first class kind of Christians. Me, I'm going to heaven economy class. You are not. 
Rather, what you should do is to plead with Jesus. To say, Jesus, my heart has betrayed me. What I'm seeing during the week, with me constantly, with a grudge against this one and a grudge against that one, and my little life shriveled around myself. Lord, this is clearly betraying the fact you have not saved me. Save me now. May the death that you died on the cross be sufficient for me. Lord Jesus, save me. Save me. And save me in such a way that I can see it by the way I live and relate to the world out there. The vertical manifesting itself in the horizontal. Lord, save me. And may I not rest until I can see something of your love outworking itself in and through me. Lord, save me. May that be your prayer today. For Christ's sake. Amen.